Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. We've we got a new, uh, new wireless mic we're going to experiment with tonight to see if... Uh, See if it works. We can get past that problem with uh, cutting out that we've had. So if things go bad, I guess I've got something else up here to go to as backup. What was that? Little, little, little. Just my imagination. I, no, I, I know better than that. That's demons in the uh, machinery. Thou shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. I heard rumblings earlier tonight as I was up here and wandering around listening to the sheep bleed about the people in power in Washington. And I know that at least half of you probably need the next hour to get back in fellowship after whatever news you heard today. And the rest of you just haven't had, you've worked up until now, and you just haven't had time to hear whatever happened today. And since it's never really good news, and a lot of us have just decided to take the next four years off from watching the news or listening to talk radio or whatever else gets you all riled up. Um, we may need a, uh, more than a few moments to <coughs> get in fellowship, but uh, you know that you just need to keep shorter accounts. So let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you control history. And as we study your word, we know that you have declared the end from the beginning. You are working all things according to a plan. And even when it seems like there is chaos around us and when we have experienced the leaders we deserve, we can especially think about times when Israel in the Old Testament certainly had incredibly foolish men, men who were uh, completely contrary to your word, leading them and directing them. And we know that every nation in history will eventually fail. Every nation in history is going to be lined up against you. And as we see in the end times, the kings of the earth will gather against you. And so we know not to put our, our, our faith in man, our, our trust in the arm of flesh, for you alone are worthy of trust, and when we trust in you, we can relax no matter what our circumstances are. Now, Father, help us to focus tonight on our own spiritual life, our responsibilities, where you are, how you are working in our lives and where you are taking us, that we may gain a greater understanding of our, our destiny, that we may live today in light of that destiny, and that we may not lose sight of the tremendous hope that we have our confident expectation 
in you and in our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I thought I'd start off with something from uh, little current events this morning. That I mean this evening, little current events. This was a uh, an editorial that was given to me on Sunday. It's the column called Sightings by uh, Terry Teachout. And the title of this is Musical Torture Instruments. And I thought I'd read segments of it, but the whole thing's just so good, I'll probably bore you by reading too much of it, but it's kind of fun, especially if you think of this in terms of what uh, I taught, I have taught in the past on music and worship and what that music has and communicates a worldview, and there's all kinds of things we ought to pay attention to in terms of music. The problem I think that many of us have is we've become so desensitized to our own cultural taste for music that we have difficulty stepping back and having a measure of objectivity, especially when, and all of us here grew up and went through fun times at wherever we were, junior high or high school or college, and music in our in the last hundred years is such a part of every person's experience growing up that it's hard for us to get past the deep emotional connections that we have to music. Most of us can relate to just if you hear certain songs on the radio, you're immediately transported in time to some place, some event, uh, some situation, uh, good or bad, but it has music has that. So... This is an article that indicates another use for music. Uh, It's written by Terry Teachout. He's fairly conservative. He writes in, doesn't he write also in Commentary Magazine? I know he writes in, what's the higher, no, the New Criterion. He writes, no, he doesn't write New Criterion. He writes in Commentary and and a few other things. So he's he's worth reading. Um, He starts, what do you fear more than anything else? In the novel 1984, George Orwell's 1948 novel about life under totalitarianism, he described a mysterious torture chamber called Room 101 where prisoners are exposed to, quote, the worst thing in the world, unquote, in order to make them talk. Quote, it might be burial alive or death by fire or by drowning or by impalement or 50 other deaths. The chief interrogator explains. I thought of Room 101 when I read that the U.S. military uses loud music to soften up detainees who refuse to talk about their terrorist activities. Not surprisingly, some, though by no means all, of the musicians whose recordings have been used for this purpose want to have it stopped. Doesn't that explain some things, why you have these liberal left-wing musicians raising cane with the Bush administration. What the backstory is, is their music's used to torture the prisoners. How interesting. He goes on to say, Reprieve, a British legal charity that defends prisoners whose human rights are allegedly being violated, has gone so far as to launch zero dB. That's a lowercase d and an uppercase b an initiative specifically aimed at at practitioners of what it calls music torture. 
President Obama's decision to close the U.S. detention center, Guantanamo Bay, and conduct a review of CIA interrogation techniques will doubtless have some as yet unknown impact on the use of music for coercive purposes. By, but speaking strictly as a critic, what I find most intriguing about this practice is the list of songs and performers reportedly used to, quote, torture detainees that Reprieve has posted on its website. I will say this slowly because so many will want to write this down. It's www.reprieve.org.uk. Reprieve.org.uk. It is an eclectic assemblage of tunes ranging from ACDC's Hell's Bells, a heavy metal ditty that sounds as though it had been recorded by an orchestra of buzzsaws, to such seemingly innocuous fare as Don McLean's American Pie. And the Bee Gees staying alive. Now, I think, no comment. To be sure, most of the records cited by Reprieve have one thing in common. They're ear-burstingly loud. But the presence on the list of, quote, I love you, the chirpy theme song of Barney and Friends, a longtime staple of children's programming on PBS, suggests that the successful use of music as a tool of coercion entails more than mere volume. I'm also struck by the fact that music is, so far as I know, the only art form used for such purposes. I don't know, if I had to sit in a room with a lot of stuff by Jackson Pollock, I might go crazy after a while. Anyway, I'm also struck by the fact that music is blah, blah, blah. No doubt it would be unpleasant to be locked in a windowless room that had bad paintings hung on all four walls, but I can't envision even the most sensitive of spies blurting out the name of his controller to escape the looming presence of Andy Warhol or Thomas Kincaid. Yet I have no trouble imagining myself reduced to hysterical babbling after being forced to listen to Shred, Grunge, and I Love You for 16-hour stretches, a technique said to have been employed by Guantanamo interrogators. No wonder the liberals want to get rid of the place. Donald Vance, who was in prison for 97 days at a U.S. military detention center in Iraq and is now suing the U.S. government, claims that Interrogators there subjected him to a nonstop barrage of recorded music that made him suicidal. It sort of removes you from you, he told an Associated Press reporter. You can no longer formulate your own thoughts when you're in an environment like that. Music really does affect your thinking and your ability to concentrate in what you're doing. And that's why I think it's so important what you do before you study God's word. Now that's a, a Sunday, and all I'm ever all I ever talk about is the kind of music you use as a preface to the study of God's word. What you do at a Christian camp when you're just singing fun songs, or what you do in other contexts, there can be appropriate music for those kinds of settings. But it still ought to be good, and it ought to be tasteful. I was at an event not long ago, and I thought the Two people singing some contemporary Christian piece of music were caterwauling. Anyway, Teachout goes on to say, I think of what Mr. Vance means, sort of. I think I know what Mr. Vance means, sort of. I've gone to a lot of terrible plays in my capacity as the journal's drama critic, but I'd much rather squirm through a bad play than a bad musical, much less a bad opera or symphony. 
No doubt this is partly because I have musical training, but I'm sure that it has more to do with the fundamental nature of the musical experience. Music, after all, is the most enveloping of the arts, the only one that creates the illusion of occupying both time and space. Live theater comes close, but it lacks music's all-encompassing quality. To enter into the presence of a piece of music, be it a Schubert sonata or a single by Metallica, is to be surrounded and permeated by its essence. The air is full of it, and the clock is ruled by it. You can't get away from music. You can't get away from, uh, which explains its unparalleled power to disorient and disturb. This power, it seems, is not limited to any one kind of music. Anyone who's paid a visit to New York's Penn Station in recent years knows that chamber music is regularly played over the station's public address system. What most commuters don't know, however, is that this Innovation was introduced in 1995 as part of the station's homelessness program. I love it. And that the purpose of the music, as an Amtrak official explained at the time, was both to calm the frenzied traveler and to displace the negative element. Translation, Mozart drives away vagrants. Similarly, a number of high school teachers have experimented in recent years, by all accounts successfully, with playing Frank Sinatra albums to miscreant teenagers during after-school detention periods. That begs for a comment, but I'll move on. I nevertheless find it significant and not a little comforting that the titles on Reprieve's list of music, music to confess by, include Hell's Bells and Nine Inch Nails, March of the Pigs, rather than, say, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the French, or In the Wee Small Hours of the Morning. Nor is this coincidental. As an interrogator for the U.S. Army's 361st Psychological Operations Company explained to Newsweek, quote, These people haven't heard heavy metal. They can't take it. If you play it for 24 hours, your brain and body functions start to slide. Your train of thought slows down and your will is broken. See, everything has a purpose. The day anyone feels moved to say such things about the marriage of Figaro is the day I'll apply for early retirement. We just have to think a lot more about music and what it does. and it's, It's very important. Okay, we're in Hebrews 9. We came to 9.15 last time. It brings us into a a doctrine that we have looked at here and there as we go through uh, Hebrews. I went back on uh, previous lessons where I've looked at the taught on the doctrine of inheritance and realized that I have taught different things at different places depending on the context. So I'm not trying to give an exhaustive review of the doctrine of inheritance here because that would probably entail the next four weeks. So I just want to hit some of the high points for us so that we can all be reminded of what inheritance is all about. Hebrews 9.15 says, For this reason, that is relating to the previous verse and the work of Christ on the cross, for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption 
Redemption always emphasizes that word purchase or payment of a price. Uh, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were uh, now committed, it's in italics, it's not in the original, but it's, it's the ideas there, the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And the phrase, those who are called, is simply used as a circumlocution or idiom for believers. And I talked about this last time in case you missed it. There's, two, there's controversy over this because the word is often used in the context. I mean, it's often used in conversations and theology within the context of the Calvinism-Arminianism argument. Calvinism roughly is a position that emphasizes God's uh, predestination, his eternal decree made before time of who would be saved, and sometimes it's articulated as who would not be saved, and that's called double predestination. Not all Calvinists are double predestinarians. And it is associated with the doctrine of unconditional election that God chooses who will be saved on the basis of his own will. And in the way Calvinists articulate unconditional election, God's omniscience is not part of the information God uses to make that choice. Now, that runs counter to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 2, which states that we were called according to his foreknowledge. But they don't want to include knowledge as part of that decision-making package because they think that implies that God is then simply being uh, manipulated by human decisions. And that, of course, is Arminianism. So if you don't agree with Calvinism, they always say, well, that means you're an Arminian. It, it, it doesn't. That's just an old debater's ploy that if you, you don't agree with me, then you must be with the really bad guys on the other side. Arminianism, on the other hand, believes in total human ability as if sin has no impact on man's thinking, volition, or on his soul, and that man can not only choose all on his own apart from God to be saved, but he can then choose to not be saved anymore, and he can lose his salvation. So that's it in a, something of a nutshell. And calling is used theologically by some to indicate unconditional election. Actually, the word refers to an external call or simply what we would call the, the, the gospel invitation, so that if someone is invited or asked to trust Christ as their Savior, offered the gospel, that is the gospel call. It's just simply an external uh, offer of the gospel, and not all will respond to that. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Chosen there is the same word that is used. It's a clege, the word for election. So it's used of that external call, which goes to saved and unsaved alike, those who will reject it. But then it is also used in other passages to refer exclusively to those who have responded to that gospel invitation. So it becomes just a synonym for those who are, for those who are believers. So the verse says that those who are called, that is those who are believers, those who have responded to the gospel call, may receive the promise of eternal uh, inheritance. And I pointed out last time that several places in Hebrews 
we see this connection between a promise which focuses on a future, uh, future plan and future fulfillment and inheritance, that these terms pop up uh, together quite, quite frequently. And so the bottom line here is that because of what Christ did as mediator of the new covenant, uh, we have on the basis of his sacrifice uh, a new promise, promises associated with the covenant. That promise relates to our future, our e- uh, eternal uh, inheritance. And so we I retranslated the verse because of some technical problems in the, in the Greek, so that those who are called, that is, those who are believers, may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance a death having come about for the redemption of the transgression of the first covenant. So the focus here is on we're saved, but for a purpose. You're not saved so you can go to heaven. You're not saved so that you can be saved in time. Those are secondary. There is a future plan that God has for us, and that all of human history is moving toward the millennial kingdom, which is really the first thousand years of eternity. Is there another microphone on up here? Okay, because when I moved this way, it hummed. Okay. We're, we're moving towards this future fulfillment in the kingdom, but there's three microphones up here. You sure one of them's not on? Every time I move to the left, that's the problem. I moved to the left. <laughs> I've just got to remember to always move right. Just remember that. Move right. Move right. As God is taking us in the direction of ultimate fulfillment, it's not just sitting on a cloud somewhere with angel wings strumming a harp and that somehow for millions and millions and billions of years, that's all we're going to do. I think that what we're going to see when we hit eternity is so far beyond anything that any human being could possibly comprehend that it just we're just not told because there's, human vocabulary can't grasp it. But when we look at what, oh, we're having fun tonight. What, what we see when we look at how God created man in the perfect environment of the garden is that man is given responsibility. He's given a, an entire planet to, uh, with all of these natural resources to learn about, to develop. Uh, man is a creature designed to think, designed to learn, designed to uh, interact with the environment around him. I think that that tells us something about what eternity is going to be like. And so we are being prepared today for that future that God has for us. So we constantly need to remember that we're living today in light of eternity, which means that the decisions we make today develop our capacity and ability for what we're going to do in the future. Now, how many of us, I'm not asking for a show of hands here, how many of us have thought back to when we were in junior high or high school or college or for some of us even after college and said, you know, I just didn't realize what life was all about. I somehow woke up when I was 
28 or 30 or 35 or, or 55 and realized what life was going to be all about. And it just sort of, I was just there through junior high or high school. I wish I could go back and really learn what I was being taught because I just really wasn't mature enough or hadn't snapped to the fact that this was preparing me for for the future, and I sure wish I had learned that better when I had the opportunity. And that's sort of the way our Christian life is, that we're going through this training process to learn the Word now, to let it become so much a part of our soul that that it, it dominates everything that we think about and all of our decision-making, so that we're in this training process so that we pop out the other end after the rapture, resurrection, whatever occurs, and we're able to live, function, decide, operate in the millennial kingdom because our soul has been trained for the way God does things. And we don't want to end up being disappointed and say, boy, I just wish I had spent more time going to Bible class instead of staying at home doing whatever or working, but my, my emphasis was on the Word of God and getting trained, which is the focal point of the local church ministry. One of the key verses that people go to and that you frequently find in every doctrinal statement you read from almost every church, they'll trot out two key verses. One is Matthew 28, 19, and 20, which is the Great Commission, uh, go therefore and uh, baptize uh, all the nations and teach all men to be my disciples. And then the other is in Ephesians uh, chapter uh, Ephesians chapter four, Ephesians chapter yeah four, eleven and twelve, dealing with the purpose of the church. That gifted men, men with spiritual gifts, apostles and prophets who are no longer on the scene pastor, teachers, and evangelists are given to the church for the equipping of the saints. Now, that phrase is really important. That word, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, is a training term. To equip somebody for a task means to educate them, to train them, to prepare them so that when they are not in the classroom anymore, they can then engage in the realities of life on the basis of what they've learned in the classroom. So that the role of the pastor is not the role of the CEO, which is one of the models that you see out there that's typically taught in seminaries today. It's not the role of the grand encourager who is always there to smile and encourage people. These may be parts of of, of the mosaic that make up a pastor's mission, but his primary mission is to train, to equip, to prepare people for the issues of life by uh, drilling them on the doctrines of the Word of God so they, they think differently from the way they did before they were saved, so that they think according to uh, the... I guess I just... No, I can't just stay in the center. That's just not right. Yeah, I think so. Which which mic should we? Okay. Yeah, it always helps make sure you plug in. Have this on switch on. So the role of pastor is to equip, to train people, 
And a lot of folks just don't want to be trained. They want to come to church. They want to go away. They want to feel good. They want to hear uh, positive, motivational-type messages, but they don't want to be trained. It's a lot easier to go to a pep rally than it is to go to football practice. It's a lot easier to sit in the stands and to watch the military parades go by and to cheer the troops than it is to go through boot camp, airborne school, or ranger school. And more, the, you know, it's that, that old Marine Corps ad, the few, the proud, the Marines. I mean, that's what God's looking for as the cadre of believers is this unique group of people who he has saved and sanctified and given everything for that are going to uh, become the cadre of his ruling administration during the uh, millennial kingdom. That's what we're being trained for. That's what we've been called for. That's why you were saved, not just so that you don't go to the lake of fire, not just so God can have the wonderful joy of your wonderful, beautiful personality in heaven for eternity, but so that you can serve him and carry out all of those responsibilities that God is going to have for us in our post-rapture, post-resurrection life. And so when we get into this issue of inheritance, that's what that that focuses on, is that future inheritance that we have. But there are problems with understanding this that people have because there are those who, on the one hand, uh, think that the Bible says that everybody gets the same inheritance. And then there are those, on the other hand, who say, no, there is a clear distinction that some people get everything, I mean, some people are going to have, that. excuse me, everybody is going to have certain things in common. Everybody's going to have a resurrection body. Everybody's going to have uh, a perfect happiness. There's not going to be any sorrow, tears, pain. All of those things will have passed away. There's no... There's no disease. There are, you're going to have a unique resurrection body. You're going to be in the presence of God and have access uh, to Him. You're going to be in heaven and you're not going to be in the lake of fire. What could be wrong with that? I used to always cringe when I would hear people say, and I had several who said this in my first church, which was a good learning experience for a young pastor. Oh, but I don't care as long, I, I don't care if I'm in the slums of heaven as long as I'm there. In other words, I'm going to justify being lazy, unmotivated, and not positive to God's word because I'm just going to be in heaven, so, so I'll, I'll just go to the ghetto, thank you, as long as I'm in heaven. And it just shows a complete unwillingness to recognize what God's saving us for, just absolutely no capacity, no understanding, just a, um, it's not even rising to the level of mediocrity. It's, it's the lo- expectation of the lowest kind as long as I'm there. Okay, but we are to move towards inheritance. So we're going to get into the doctrine of inheritance, and a key verse for this 
is Colossians 3, 23 to 24, which is a great verse to understand. Paul says, whatever you do. Now, whatever is one of those broad terms that doesn't leave anything out. Whatever you do, that includes your uh, how you work at the office, how you work at home, what you do in your uh, free time, what you do uh, at church, what you do when you're all by yourself, what you do when you're in school, in the classroom. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. That means focus on it and do your best as working for the Lord, not as for men. Don't think about the fact that you're doing this for that lousy boss who always takes credit for what you do and who never uh, gives you any credit or any praise. You're working as unto the Lord and not as unto men. Since you know this is a causal phrase because you know something. It's interesting how many times, I ought to go through this sometime and figure out how many times you have a causal participle or a causal knowledge clause in the, in the New Testament, in the epistles, because you know something, because you know something, not because you feel something, not because you've been um, motivated for something, but because you know something. You have to learn something before you can apply it. And to learn things takes time. It takes effort. It takes discipline. It takes commitment to the process because you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Now, an inheritance that's a reward is different from salvation, which is a gift. Salvation is a free gift to people who simply believe in Jesus as their Savior. They don't do anything for it. They simply believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and they are given Eternal life, they are given this package of grace blessings. Ephesians chapter 1, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We haven't even begun to touch on all of the things that God has blessed us, has blessed us with. But those were all given to us as a free gift. And we didn't do anything to earn them or to deserve them. But that's different from an inheritance. An inheritance comes as a reward to those who work, to those who do all things as unto the Lord, to those who mature in their spiritual life. So this sets the stage for understanding that part of inheritance is not a free gift, but part of our inheritance is something that is given on the basis of our maturation, our growth, our capacity in order to, our capacity to uh, use it, to experience it, and to carry out those responsibilities. So we'll start looking at the basic words that are used. We have in the Greek the noun kleronomos, which refers to an heir, an inherit, one who inherits, it also can refer to inheritance, the possession or the property. Now, in our culture, you inherit something when someone dies. But that's not what a, this word always means in both Greek and in Hebrew. Biblically speaking, 
It's primarily thought of as a possession, something one has. You may get it by virtue of the death of someone, but you may get it as a gift from someone without a death being involved. The verb is kleronomeo, which simply means to possess. That's the primary meaning. To possess or to receive something as one's own possession or to obtain something. The Hebrew word is nahala. That's the noun. Nahal is the verb. And it means an inheritance, a heritage, or again, a possession. So the the idea here is this is something that is yours, something that is a possession, and we see that it's given on different bases. Some is can be a gift, and other times it can be uh, as a reward. Now, to understand the New Testament concept of anything, what do you have to understand first? The Old Testament concept. You have to go to the Old Testament because the the, the precedent for the New Testament isn't, and for New Testament Greek, isn't Greek culture. Uh, that that help, that's very helpful to understand other uh, other ways in which these biblical words are used in the broader Greek culture and Koine Greek, or even tracing the historical etymology. But the reality is, is the writers of the New Testament are coming out of a Jewish background. They're coming out of an Old Testament background. Hebrew was their first language. And so the concepts that they're talking about in, with Greek vocabulary are concepts that come out of the Old Testament. So if you want to know what hagias, the Greek word for holy, means, you don't go to uh, Sophocles or Euripides or Plato or Aristotle to find out what that means. You go to Moses. And you go to Isaiah and you go to Jeremiah. That's where you find out what that word means. Uh, same thing with uh, inheritance. You don't look at what's going on in the Greek culture as the background. You have to go back to the Old Testament and find out how these words uh, were used in the, uh, in the Old Testament. I'm just going to look at uh, three verses to emphasize a couple of points, all of this is all under point one, just trying to understand the basic meaning of the, of the uh, vocabulary. Uh, Exodus 34, uh, 9, Moses is speaking, and he is speaking to God, and he says, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us, as your inheritance. So if God is going to take Israel, take the Jews, as his inheritance, does anybody die in order for him to get the property? No. It's a, it's, it's, that's where you see just the root meaning of this word as a possession, not involving the death and transfer of property from one person uh, to another. Now, the next verse to look at is Numbers 14.24. Now, to understand Numbers 14, we have to understand the background for this. This comes right after the event that's described in in Numbers 13 related to the Jewish failure at Kadesh Barnea. 
Kadesh Barnea was located in south of Israel, south of the land of Canaan, and it was to have been the original jumping-off spot for the conquest of the land after the Exodus generation came out of Egypt. After they came out of Egypt, they spent the first year uh, at Mount Sinai, which is somewhere, I believe, in the center part of the Sinai Peninsula, not the traditional site down on the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula, which... Um, is too far from Kadesh Barnea to fit, fit the biblical guidelines for how long it took that number of people to travel, three million people to travel at the rate of about eight to ten miles a day. It was too far away, so they made it in a rather short time. They came to Kadesh Barnea, and God said, we're going to send out a LERP, that's a long-range reconnaissance patrol, into the land in order to see uh, the layout of the land. They They weren't going to find out how or if they could conquer the land. They, they interpreted the command wrong, which is a great passage for teaching the importance of correct interpretation. Eight of the spies interpreted the command wrong, and so they responded in fear. Two of the spies said, excuse me, two of the f- spies recognized God had already given them the land, They were just to check it out and to see what the layout was so that when they went into the land, they would be able to uh, understand where they were going and what the disposition of of the enemy was. That was Caleb and Joshua, and they trusted God. Well, when they got back from exploring the land and going throughout the land, eight of the, or excuse me, ten of the twelve came back and said, well, we can't do it. There are too many people, there are giants in the land, and they live in these tremendously walled, walled cities, and we just don't have the resources uh, to conquer. But two of the twelve, Joshua and Caleb, said it doesn't matter how many people there are, how big they are, or what kind of military technology they have. All we need is the Lord. If the Lord's on our side, then we're going to win. They understood the principle that the battle is the Lord's. And so God is going to uh, reward Caleb and Joshua, but there is a loss of reward for everybody else. They don't enter the rest. We went through this in, in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. They, they uh, gave up their inheritance when they disobeyed God, and God prohibited them from entering into the land and taking possession of the land. This is how uh, God expresses it in regard to Caleb, he says in Numbers 14.24, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him, and that's not saying that the Jews were demon-possessed and he's got the Holy Spirit in him. Here the word spirit has the idea of, a, of an attitude, of a way of thinking, a mentality, and he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully. I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. And that's that idea of possession. They will own the land, they will dispossess the Canaanites, and they will inherit it. Now the next passage we're going to look at is a passage in Lamentations chapter 5, verse 2. Now here's the historical background. In 586 B.C., the Chaldean army, the Neo-Babylonian Empire under uh, Nebuchadnezzar invaded Israel, or the southern kingdom of Judah, rather, for the third time. They had done it in 605. They invaded again around 592. And in 586, he's now going to crush 
these rebellious, stiff-necked Jews in Judah, and he's going to defeat them. And when he does, he's going to he conquers Jerusalem and destroys the temple. At this time, or after this, Jeremiah writes the book of Lamentations, where he laments, where he grieves over the loss of the land and the fact that they no longer have a temple and they no longer have possession of the land that God gave them. And he expresses it in Lamentations 5.2. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens, not, not Star Trek type aliens, but foreigners. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our houses to foreigners. Well, what this shows is inheritance can be lost. Inheritance can be taken away. Uh, in, just because something is an, in, uh, uh, an inheritance, a possession is promised, doesn't mean that it can't be lost or jeopardized by disobedience. We have two examples, the Exodus generation and the generation of, of uh, the Babylonian captivity jeopardized and lost their possession through disobedience to God. So we can say four things about the meaning of the concept of, of Pleronimos or Nahalah in the Old Testament. That it's, first of all, it's a birthright which one enters into by virtue of sonship. Uh, a couple of passages of Galatians uh, 4.30 and Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 1.4. Second, it's property that's received as a gift in contrast to a reward. Now, the point that I'm making in both of these is there are aspects of our inheritance that are ours by virtue of regeneration alone. By virtue of birth, we have access to certain um, a certain possession, a certain inheritance. So the first point, a birthright can be entered into by virtue of sonship. And second, property received as a gift in contrast to reward. Now, sonship is, uh, it's just terrible. You live, we live in a time where you have to say, this is not a sexist term. This is a term, this is a legal term under inheritance law in the Roman Empire and that a firstborn son is the one who gets the blessing and the one who uh, has the greatest position in law in relationship to inheritance. And so it, does, it doesn't matter by, in terms of the application of this whether you're male or female, we are all have access to this kind of sonship. Third, it's property that can be received on condition of obedience to certain conditions. Now, you see the last two points here uh, shift the emphasis to something that is earned or something that is given as a reward that is not just automatically received by virtue of birth. It can be property received on condition of obedience to certain uh, conditions, or fourth, reward based on meeting certain conditions and following certain activities. Typo on that word. Now, as far as the Christian is concerned, we recognize that our inheritance is derivative. 
That means it is based on a greater inheritance, and that is the inheritance that goes to Jesus Christ as the firstborn son. This is stated in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days, uh, God, we pick up God from as the subject from verse 1, God has spoken to us uh, in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So Christ is the heir of all things, and that is his future role. What we learn when we studied Hebrews 1 is that when Jesus Christ in hypostatic union in vir- by virtue of his humanity, when he lived his life in obedience to God, he then qualified for this inheritance. It wasn't simply a birth issue. It is a qualification and reward issue because this isn't something, the inheritance to all things isn't what he gets because he is the second person of the Trinity. It's what he gets because of his fulfillment of his mission as the greater son of David. So, that leads to the third point, that Christ's inheritance, his heirship, is based on his successful completion of his strategic victory on the cross. It's called a strategic victory because your overall approach or plan to a problem is your strategy. What you do in individual uh, battles or individual components are your tactics. So the the cross is the strategic victory uh, when sin is paid for and the problem of sin is completely resolved and handled by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Fourth point, Jesus Christ is qualified for that inheritance because he was impeccable in his humanity. This is one of the most difficult things for a lot of folks to to grasp, is that Jesus Christ, in his humanity, without reaching over and accessing divine attributes, without accessing his omniscience, without accessing his omnipotence, without uh, accessing any... Uh, divine abilities, Jesus Christ faced and handled the problems of his life, his day-to-day existence, spiritual challenges, temptation by Satan in the wilderness, uh, any other kind of human temptation was handled in his humanity without accessing his deity. It's handled by reliance on the Spirit of God and the Word of God, the same thing that you and I have. If he had relied on his deity, which is what a lot of people think, if he had relied upon his deity, then how can we follow that example? We don't have any deity to access. So somehow in the hypostatic union, where you have perfect deity combined with perfect humanity, undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person, He's able, somehow there was a, I don't know, a curtain, a valve, I don't care what kind of analogy you want to use, there's some kind of uh, partition, and I don't want to emphasize that too much because we're not talking about a, a multiple personality Jesus that gets into the Nestorian heresy, but he's able to 
volitionally shut off access to his divine attributes to handle certain things. That's why Jesus in his humanity says, I don't know when I'm coming back. That's only for the Father to know. Well, wait a minute. In, in, in your deity, you're omniscient. But he's not talking as God there. He's talking as man and in his role as the, as the son of man. So Jesus is qualified because he's impeccable in his humanity. He never, ever sinned. He never relied upon his deity to get through the problem. He never uh, disobeyed God. He was 100% obedient. And this impeccability is developed. It is a process. He goes through the same learning process that you and I go through. He had to learn Scripture. Uh, Luke 2.52 says that he grew uh, in um, wisdom and in stature with both God and men. He goes through the basic growth process that we all did. He had to, in his humanity, he had to learn uh, the scriptures. He had to memorize the scriptures. He had to learn how to pray. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to eat. He had to learn how to do all of those things uh, just as we do. He had to learn how to apply the Scripture. The only difference is he didn't have a sin nature uh, sort of gumming up the works and making it difficult to learn. Uh, he goes through that whole process and he has to go through the same testing, suffering, adversity as everybody else. I'm just... I would think, but this is probably my sin nature, that if I had eight or nine brothers and sisters that I had to put up with and I didn't have a sin nature and they did, that that would be a pretty difficult thing to deal with. Of course, it probably was hard on their side too because their mother kept saying, you know, why don't you do it like Jesus did? He's perfect. You know, maybe you were a third or fourth child and you had a perfect older sibling and it really wasn't perfect but in this case you have an older sibling that is perfect so Jesus has to learn obedience through the things that he suffered he had to go through the learning process and he had to go through adversity where he learned to apply the word he learned to rely on the Holy Spirit and he learned to follow uh, follow God's pattern. Uh, this is seen in Hebrews, a couple of verses, Hebrews 2.10 and Hebrews 5.8. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things. See, that emphasizes his deity. For whom are all things, and through whom are all things. In bringing many sons to glory, that's his ultimate destiny, bringing many sons, there's that term again, it refers to male and female, bringing many sons to glory, phase three, To it was fitting for him, um, excuse me, you know, I do this every time I read this verse out of context. The him there isn't the son. The him there is the father. For it was fitting for him, the father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, that's God's plan of salvation, to perfect the author of their salvation, that is to bring to maturity the author of their salvation, that's Jesus, through sufferings. So God's plan was to take the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity through various stages of adversity 
so that he could learn to apply the word. Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, capital S, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So he had to go through all of this and to be perfect, to be sinless, to be living with the, in the midst of all of the arrogance, all of the stupidity, all of the legalism, all of the distortion of the law, all of the illiteracy about the scriptures that he had to deal with just shows how 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 patient and gracious uh, he really was. And he had to handle all of that by relying upon uh, the Holy Spirit. So point five, his spiritual growth qualifies him for the inheritance. And this we see in passages such as Psalm 2.8, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Now, nobody had to die for Jesus to get that inheritance. He will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Now, I know he had to die. I know somebody's thinking that. Well, wait a minute. Jesus died and he gets the inheritance. But, but you don't die to get your inheritance. That's, that's the wrong way of looking at at this, there is a death there, but that death is not uh, what transfers property. I will sure, God says, "I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession." And uh, of course, Hebrews one four uh, one two, which we looked at already, that He is appointed heir of all things. Now we'll stop here, and we'll come back next time to continue to look at this and to pull this doctrine of inheritance together. Because once we get through this, there's a key problem that we're going to have to address, and that really helps us understand the mission that God has for us. And just as Jesus had a mission, and Jesus' mission was to grow in his maturity so that he would be qualified, we are to grow in our maturity through learning the Word, learning to rely upon God, trusting in him, so that we then be, become qualified for our inheritance and to rule as joint heirs with Christ in the kingdom. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the challenge we have in the scriptures that we are uh, to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and to understand that we're not saved simply to uh, sit back and be glad that we are not going to go to the lake of fire, but to realize that we're saved for a purpose and that we're in training now so that we can be qualified to fulfill that purpose and that we will have the capacity to to lead, to rule, to minister, to serve in the kingdom and on into eternity. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the importance of this mission and understanding it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.